1: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is... Mini-Series 5, Father Times Mismanagement. I hope you'll forgive the somewhat punny title that is a bit of my theme. As you'll find out, it works on a few levels, because if the Valois are known for one thing, it's fathers and sons not getting along. The successor line, the Bourbons, are a different story. For a few generations, it looked like fathers and sons would never get to know each other. In this case, though, I'm specifically looking at three fathers who died before their distant cousin, and one woman who almost changed the rules. She doesn't fit perfectly into the theme. But it's my podcast, I want to do an episode about her, so I'm putting her in there anyways. We're lucky, none of these men were actually close to being king, and the, well, it's messy, we'll get to it. (laughs) All three men died more than 10 years before the man that their son would succeed. But it gives us a great chance to take a second look at Salic Law. Plus, I love genealogy, so I get to go through exactly how complicated Salic law makes inheritance in France, and how the French almost got rid of it just one time. Before I get too excited talking about archaic law and men making things up to prevent women from ruling, I should probably tell you who you'll be learning about in the coming weeks or months. I want to remind you all that this will be a much more light-hearted series as compared to the last. There is drama around all of these people, but not specifically with them ruling. There's just a lot of bad timing with that. First, the man I'm most excited to share, Charles of Orléans, the oldest surviving son of Louis of Orléans, the brother of Charles VI. The subject Charles, not his uncle, the king who thought he was made of glass, was only 14 when he became Duke of Orléans. You may remember this from the first time I discussed John the Fearless Duke of Burgundy. Charles of Orléans' son, Louis, will become the King of France in 1498, 34 years after Charles' death. Charles of Orléans was captured at the Battle of Agincourt. While imprisoned, he wrote poetry in French and English, hence my interest in sharing his story. Second is also a Charles, and to make it harder, he's also of Orléans. But thankfully, he goes by the more used name of Charles, Count of Angoulême. This Charles was the grandson of Louis of Orléans. It also makes him the nephew of the first subject. His son, François, will become king of France in 1515, 19 years after the death of his father Charles. His daughter, Marguerite, is honestly the most amazing member of her family by far. Patrons will be getting a special episode about her, and I am really excited to share this with you. The third subject is Antoine de Bourbon, who was the King of Navarre, but never got to rule France. His son is the first Bourbon monarch and takes power when the valois male line ends in 1589, 27 years after Antoine's death. So you have a general idea of when each of these guys die, And while Antoine's story will be a little messy, it's due to religion. No one is getting put in a rice box. The fourth subject is a woman who was almost queen. Isabella Clara Eugenia. Who, you say? The daughter of the oldest sister of the last Valois king. She actually came closer than any princess had since Joan II of Navarre. In addition to Marguerite's special episode, I will also have a special episode about Anne of France, also known as Anne de Bijoux, for patrons in the heir apparent and usurp tiers. Anne, like Marguerite, was a writer in addition to being a statesperson, and I'm really looking forward to her episode. I'll also have a few This to Shall Past episodes, and patrons, there will be a vote up for another special episode. You actually get to choose the subject. As I mentioned way back in the Capetian Miracle Ends, all French kings, save the Bonaparte line, are Capetians. After the death of Charles IV, the fair, the youngest son of Philip IV, also the fair, the senior branch of the Capetians were gone, at least in the male line. Hmm, should I do an episode about the flowerpot theory of reproduction? Yes, I think I will. This will be in the This Too Shall Past. Remember, All three of Philip IV's sons had failed to have surviving male issue. His oldest, Louis X, was succeeded, posthumously, for five days by his son, John I. Philip V, the tall, Louis X's younger brother, had made up this new rule, using an actual ancient law dealing with property rights to disinherit Louis's only surviving child, Joan. Joan got her own episode. You'll remember that she eventually inherited the throne of Navarre, but not France. Of course, the nobility of France agreed with this plan. We're well past the point of a king just doing what he wants by force of will. Though that will come back in France in a few generations before it ends horribly. We'll get there. The relevant part of Salic Law, just to remind you, says in section 59 concerning private property. If any man die and leave no sons, if the father and mother survive, they shall inherit. If the father and mother do not survive and he leave brothers or sisters, they shall inherit. But if there are none, the sisters of the father shall inherit. But if there are no sisters of the father, the sisters of the mother shall claim that inheritance. If there are none of these, the nearest relative on the father's side shall succeed to that inheritance. And the final part, but of Salic land, No portion of the inheritance shall come to a woman, but the whole inheritance of the land shall come to the male sex. Again, thanks to the Yale Law Library, I'll include a link in the show notes. It's that last line there that Philip V used to usurp his niece and make royal genealogy in France more complicated and needlessly difficult than it ever needed to be. Don't forget, that line in Salic Law has to do with property given by the crown for military services. It has nothing to do with royal inheritance. Remember that before that moment, there had never been the need to figure out who would inherit next. Every Capetian king had been succeeded by his oldest surviving son, and that son, in turn, by his oldest surviving son. John I dying, at only five days old, threw a wrench into the works and is incredibly sad. Louis X claiming his potentially illegitimate daughter was just someone taking apart the wrong piece to get the wrench out. For more on this, please again, see mini-series 2, The Capetian Miracle Ends. With this rule and the solidifying of royal inheritance, everything was set in France. This was unexpected. It means that the French kept really good track of who was next, as you'll see soon now this would never work in england unless illegitimate lines were able to inherit and those do exist there are no legitimate male line only descendants of either william the bastard or his son henry i or henry's grandson henry ii remaining the last member died in 1499 with the death of edward plantagenet the only surviving son of george duke of clarence This date is correct as well if you believe that Perkin Warbeck was actually one of the princes in the tower since they were executed in the same year, just days apart. The French somehow avoided this. Looking at the descendants of Hugh Capet, there seemed to be an almost surplus of male issue until there suddenly wasn't. I mentioned in the earlier series that until the death of John I, the posthumous son of Louis X, There hadn't been anything other than father-to-son inheritance since Hugh Capet. mentioned it earlier in this episode. There had, though, been a few second sons to inherit. Henry I, Louis VII, and even Philip IV had older brothers, though Philip's older brother was a young child when he died. Once the mainline Capetian branch ended, the Valois had every chance to succeed long-term. To make the next part easier, I will be including detailed family trees on social media. Before I get to each subject's episode, or episodes, I need to set up the three points where a Valois branch ended, so I'll be going through a bit of the lives of each of the men from whom my upcoming subject's sons inherit, and a little bit of one of their sons. I want to get to the point of failure for each one before moving on to the man who didn't succeed. Charles of Valois, who was never king, and probably wasn't poisoning his nephews, was the founder of the House of Valois. He had two sons, Philip VI, the Fortunate, and Charles of Alençon. Things looked even better one generation later, when Philip's oldest son, John II, had four sons, who each had sons of their own. The senior Valois line was doing great, even after the shocking reign of Charles VI. He's the guy who thought he was made of glass and was generally mentally unwell. He, at various points, had three sons alive until near the end of his reign. Left with only one son, the future Charles VII at the end, though, it looked bad for a moment. But Charles VII had two surviving sons. His second son, also Charles, didn't have any children. His heir, whom he never got along with, Louis XI, only had one surviving son, though. And this is where things go wrong. Louis XI didn't have much of a chance to not get along with his son. His son, Charles, Charles VIII, was only 13 when he succeeded to the throne in August of 1483. His regent was his older sister Anne, who had probably rate one of the top kings to have ever ruled France. She's up there with Blanche of Castile and Charles V, and yes, I do know I put two women in the top kings of France ever. Charles VIII was not well suited to the role of king. Thankfully, Anne was suited and her husband was helpful. Sadly, her regency officially ended in 1491. She is the woman who likely helped Henry Tudor gather forces for his successful attempt at the English throne. In 1483, while his father was still alive, Charles VIII was betrothed to Margaret of Austria, who was three at the time. Margaret was actually raised in France and grew to care greatly for her betrothed. Sadly, it didn't end well for her, at least in this account. Charles' sister Anne, whom I'll call Madame Lagrange because that's what she was called, was in control of things after their father died, and she was happy for him to marry Margaret. Until 1488, when she realized there might be a better bride for her brother. That's the year Francis II of Brittany died. This was the duke who had also helped protect Henry VII of England. These people liked Henry VII. Francis's heir was his oldest daughter, Anne. Now, going all the way back to the War of Breton Succession, in theory, the duchy should have gone to the senior male line descendants of Joan of Brittany and Charles of Blois. To simplify this, in case you're curious, this would have been John III of Navarre, also known as John Delbray. Of note, Delbray's mother had renounced her rights a few times and even sold them to Louis XI of France. I'll get back to Margaret and Charles in two seconds, but John Delbray is actually the great-grandfather-in-law of our third subject, Antoine de Bourbon. This means, in theory, the result that is about to happen would happen anyway. It just would have taken a bit longer. What was going to happen next, you ask? Well, Anne of Brittany, at only 11, yes, only 11, decided to arrange a marriage between herself and Margaret's father, Maximilian of Austria. The French regent, though, said no, and due to Brittany's loss in the recent Mad War, le guerre foule, Anne of Brittany was forced to ask for French approval for marriages. Despite Madame Legrand’s denial, Anne was still married by proxy to Maximilian. This marriage would legally last from December 1490 until February 1492. Anne was unable to move to Germany, though, due to both her husband being busy with his own wars and the French literally blocking her. In 1491, the French actually lay siege to Rennes, where Anne was staying. After two months, she was forced to surrender and allow Charles VIII into the city. The couple was officially married on the 6th of December, 1491. You'll notice that overlaps with the dates of Anne's first marriage. Yep, Charles VIII didn't wait for papal dispensation, which came in February the following year. Now, Brittany is at least temporarily part of France. To keep it, though, Charles needs to have children with Anne. And this is one thing they seem to be good at, at least the making kids part. Between October 1492 and March 1498, Anne had six documented pregnancies. Remember, her annulment only came through in February 1492. Sadly, only one child, their oldest, Charles Orleando, survived infancy. He died of measles at the age of three, and I'll use this as my vaccination reminder, don't risk measles. His parents were, unsurprisingly, devastated to the point where his mother's mental health was questioned. This means, though, that when Charles VIII hit his head on the lintel of a door in 1498, leaving a tennis match and died a few hours later, his line ended. Those who follow me on Instagram will know I have a love of kingly deaths caused by door lentils and tennis, so this actually ranks as my favourite royal death. As macabre as that sounds. <laughs>
1: and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: His uncle hadn't had any children. His great uncles, as you'll remember, had all died young, which left the descendants of his great-great uncle, Louis of Orléans. The first on that list was, interestingly, Louis II of Orléans, who will become Louis XII. And this is what gets us to our first pass, the man who died too early to rule, Charles of Orléans, the oldest surviving son of Louis of Orléans, and the father of Louis II of Orléans, Louis XII of France. This line becomes the sadly short-lived Valois-Orléans family. You will, of course, have to wait until next week to hear Charles of Orléans' story, but now you have the setup. Sorry to leave you hanging. But here's a little about his son, Louis. This Louis, of course, became Louis XII of France and was actually a rather impressive king. Easily in the top ten, maybe even top five French kings. He's up there with those women I mentioned earlier. Sadly, he hadn't had the happiest personal life, at least not at first. Louis XI, Charles VIII's father, had forced Louis of Orléans to marry his daughter, no not Madame La but his other daughter, Joan, in 1476. Joan likely had a malformation of her spine. She walked with a limp and had a hump on her back. Due to this, her father thought she would be unable to bear children, and apparently hoped that marrying her to Louis would end the Orléans line. I should mention that Louis XI earned the nickname the Universal Spider due to his spinning of webs, as in his plotting and conspiring. In all fairness, he was also called the prudent. So, yes, if you're unclear, the king of France had married his own daughter off, not for her happiness or even financial well-being or a treaty or anything that benefited him, but to stop his cousin from having children. Oh, and I should mention that Joan was actually a brilliant, educated, and interesting woman. She just happened to have physical deformities. She was three years older than Louis of Orleans, and I have no idea if their marriage was consummated because this is a disputed issue. That dispute is actually kind of the start of Louis XII's reign. Louis was now king, and he wanted his marriage annulled so he could marry Anne of Brittany. Yes, I did say the correct name, the widow of the previous king, Charles VIII. Louis' grounds for dissolving his marriage were that he was below the legal age of consent, 14, and further that the marriage had never been consummated. And finally, that Joan had employed witchcraft to stop him from having sexual relations with her. Joan's argument in opposition to this, remember, she is now Queen of France and wants to stay that way, was that the marriage had been consummated, which was all she needed to argue to win. Sadly for Joan, the Pope was on Louis' side and their marriage was annulled. By the way, he could have been a bit kinder and claimed consanguinity. They were related through Charles V of France and it looks like papal dispensation hadn't been received. Yet again, everyone is related. After this annulment, Louis XII was able to marry Anne of Brittany. And Anne? Anne? is a good choice from a practical perspective. She was obviously fertile and not even 22, and it kept Brittany as part of France. They were married on the 9th of January, 1499, and Anne was able to negotiate that Brittany would remain separate from France and that their second child would inherit the duchy. Interestingly, it appears that a daughter had equal inheritance rights to a son in this clause. Anne and Louis had five pregnancies. In case you're keeping track, that's 11 pregnancies for Anne between 1492 and 1513. Her only two children to survive into adulthood were from the second marriage, her daughters, Claude and Renée. Louis wasn't giving up, though. Anne died in early 1514, and by October that year Louis had married Mary Tudor, the younger sister of Henry VIII of England. Now, if you've watched The Tudors or The White Princess, you may think Louis was an old man at death's door. The Tudors presented the King of Portugal, who was a stand-in for Louis quite horribly. But he was actually only 51. Mary, though, was rather young, at 20. This marriage was not to last long, and I'll get to that in just a moment. So we're going to get on to the next Charles, Charles of Angoulême, Which is going to tell you what happened to Louis XII's story in the end. Which is, he was the only Valois-Orléans king. There we go. (laughs) And that brings us to the Valois-Angoulême line, which should probably be called the Valois-Orléans-Angoulême line. See, while Louis XI had tried to end one part of the Orléans line, he forgot the other. That of Charles of Orléans' younger brother. I do again apologize that you'll have to wait a few weeks to hear the story of Charles Count of Angoulême, but I am hoping you'll stick around for that. Plus, his daughter is amazing. Let's just go with that. But here's a bit of what happened when his son became king. Just a bit. This new line would actually last for a few more generations than the most recent one. By that, I mean it lasted three generations, which is better than one, right? It still managed to have five monarchs, though. The 2nd Valois-Angoulême king, Henri II, had four sons survive childhood, much like Philip IV, the fair. This didn't work out, though, even with that extra son. Three of his sons would rule, and all four failed to produce male issue. In fact, Henri II only had one legitimate granddaughter from any of his sons. Philip IV had a lot more granddaughters than that. This means that when Henri III was assassinated in 1589, that was it for any Valois or Leon line, at least in the male line. This meant, yet again, due to Philip V's decision way back in 1316, more than 250 years earlier, France needed a new king. And he needed to be descended from a male line. Now, before you think they had a lot of research to do, They didn't. The French court 100% knew who the next king should be. He was in fact the first prince of the blood, or the premier prince du sang. But there was one major problem. Religion. In this moment, France considered ditching salic law, and this is where our last two subjects come in. I'm actually going to do these out of order because it will make more sense that way. The one who was almost the first queen of France is easy to explain, and unlike our other subjects, her claim is rather obvious. Isabella Clara Eugenia was the oldest daughter of Elizabeth of France, the oldest daughter and second child of Henri II and Catherine de' Medici. Her uncle, Henri III, was the last Valois-Angoulême king. Had France practiced inheritance, like England or even Brittany, she would have had a great claim. Since religion was such an issue in France, as will come up many times towards the end of this series, and Isabella was Catholic, she was actually the first choice for much of the French estates general. The final person, who was almost king, Antoine de Bourbon, and this is where I need to get properly into genealogy, remember when I'm going through this list that 1589 is the date we're going towards. As I mentioned above, the first Valois king. Philip VI had two sons, John II and Philip of Orléans. John had four sons, and Philip had none. So this leaves John's four sons. His oldest, Charles V, had two sons, and we've seen both of those lines. The senior Valois line and the cadet Valois-Orléans line. So let's go through each of John's three younger sons, Louis of Anjou, John of Berry, and Philip of Burgundy, Philip the Bold. First up, Louis, Duke of Anjou. His only surviving son, also a Louis, had issue. Another Louis, Rene and Charles. Louis had no children. Rene does, and he has come up before. He is the father of Margaret of Anjou, Henry VI of England's wife. She is the mother of Edward, the Prince of Wales, the one who liked seeing people's heads cut off. Rene has two sons, John and Louis. The third son, Charles, had one son, also a Charles. So now we have John, Louis, and their cousin Charles. John had only one surviving son, Nicholas, who died childless in 1473. Louis had no children, and their cousin Charles had no children. And with that, in 1481, with Charles's death, the male line of Valois-Anjou is over. Next up is John, Duke of Berry, and this one is pretty quick and easy. John had one surviving son, also John, and the younger John had no children and predeceased his father. So, when the elder John dies in 1416, the Valois Berry line is over. I told you it was a short story, but you'll get to hear a bit more about the older John in Charles' episodes, and I'm really excited to talk about him. And finally, the Burgundians. Oh, and I will be using their super because they're fun. If you want a more detailed story please go listen to the grand dukes of the west really it's great but for now philip the bold philip had three surviving sons john the fearless you may remember him or at least his death on a bridge antoine and philip john had one surviving son philip the good antoine has two sons john and philip and philip has two sons charles and john of philip the good John, Philip, Charles, and John, though. Only Philip the Good has a surviving son. Philip the Good had no trouble having children. In fact, he gave Henry I of England a run for his money, fathering at least 18 illegitimate children. Where he did worse than Henry is that he only managed to have one legitimate surviving child. But unlike Henry, he had a son who properly survived. No shipwrecks or anything like that. Charles the Bold. And Charles is one of my favourite historical subjects, I'm sure I'll find a way to do a special episode about him at some point. Charles didn't earn his super K by being safe, obviously, and this would end the Valois-Burgundian line in 1477 when he died with only a daughter. With that, I've eliminated all of John II's sons and their respective male lines. So I need to go back to Philip IV's generation. Philip's brother, Charles of Valois, who's Philip VI's father, yet again, when not poisoning his nephews, my kid, (laughs) had a second son. He actually had a few other sons, but only the second one survived. This son, Charles of Alençon, died at the Battle of Cressy, but before he did, he had four surviving sons, Charles, Philip, Peter, and Robert. Charles and Philip couldn't have legitimate issue because they were both bishops. Oops. Oops. Peter had one surviving son, John, and Robert, the youngest, had no surviving issue. So this leaves just Peter's son, John. John had one surviving son, also John. Guys, new names. John had a single legitimate son, René. And René kept this going with one surviving son, Charles. Throughout much of his life, Charles was the first prince of the blood, the premier prince du sang the highest-ranked member of the royal family after the king and his immediate heirs. But he died in 1525, without issue, which ends the Valois-Allençon line. Now, I get to go back to Philip IV and Charles of Valois' generation again. They had a younger half-brother, as you might remember, Louis, Count of Ivreau. Louis had two surviving sons, Charles and Philip. Charles had one son, Louis, though Louis had no issue. Philip is, of course, Philip of Yvro, the husband of Joan II of Navarre, and the father of Charles II of Navarre, the Bad. Patrons should remember him, and everyone should remember his death. Philip and Joan had two further sons, Philip and Louis. Charles the Bad had one surviving son, Charles III, who only had daughters. And oddly enough, through his daughters, his line will rejoin the French throne. Their second son, Philip, had no issue, and their third son, Louis, did the same. So this ends the Avro-cadet line, and that happened way back in 1425. This means that by 1525, all the cadet lines of Valois were gone. It was only this senior Capetian royal line that we have to go back to. So who is going to inherit the throne if Henri II's sons fail to have sons? Well, let's go one more generation back, to the father of Philip IV, Charles of Valois, and Louis of Evreau. Philip III had been the oldest son of Louis IX, Saint Louis. For reference, Philip III reigned from 1270 to 1285. We are looking at a new king in the 1500s, and this is how complicated Salic Law made things. Because I've gone through everyone else's family tree, I'm actually going to skip this next one because Louis IX had four surviving sons, Philip III, John Tristan, Peter, and Robert of Clermont. It was through his youngest son, Robert, that the Bourbon line comes, and it's also through one of that Robert's younger, or cadet, lines. The point I'm trying to make is that France was willing to look all the way back to a line from the 13th century to avoid having a woman rule. Throughout his life, Antoine de Bourbon, King of Navarre, had known he was in line for the French throne, but he could never have expected that his distant cousins, Henri II's sons, would fail to have issue. The idea that his son would be King of France would have been the furthest thing from his mind unless he literally usurped the throne. But somehow it happened. The reason I'm looking forward to covering him is to get the chance to explore the interaction between the French and Navarrese thrones. Plus, it gives me a chance to put names into the wars of religion going on in France at the time. With that long genealogy recap out of the way, I will see you all next week to discuss prison and poetry with Charles of Orléans. Patrons, please make sure to vote for the special episode. I'll see you all soon. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at pastpod, that's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.